It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Welcome, everybody, and thank you for joining us, wherever you may be. I'm Daniel Davis, and you're listening to the Beyond 50 radio program. On the program today, we have a fascinating uh, segment in front of us. We're going to be talking about the emotional roots of chronic illness, which is the title of the book. And our guest joining us today is Jerry Cantor, going to be talking with us about homeopathy for existential stress. And I'd like to welcome to the Beyond 50 radio program today, our guest, Jerry Cantor. Jerry, thank you for joining us here on the program. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Now, first of all, tell us how you got into this realm with your life and uh, what guides you and the principles that you outline in your book. Oh, wow. Um, well, actually, it's a sequel, maybe 20 years later, uh, to the first book I wrote, which was called Interpreting Chronic Illness. And in that book, um, I, because I'm an acupuncturist as well as a homeopath, I figured out a very concise synthesis of Chinese medical principles, Chinese medicine, homeopathy, and also biomedicine, according to which you could uh, look at chronic illnesses and interpret the symptoms um, in a way that was in accordance with uh, as I said, Chinese medicine and homeopathy. Um, so that was a basic, a basic model. And then many years later, I realized that in homeopathy, where we have something called uh, the, the miasms, the five classical miasms, these are diseases that have gone through the population and left traces on the descendants. Um, that was something that I left out in that first book. And then when I explored it more, more, in more depth, I realized that those five miasms embed deep existential questions um, that can be modeled uh, in a, according to the same things, I, same principles I put down in my first book. So in a way, it's an extension of that book, except whereas in the first book, I was talking about chronic illnesses and interpreting them. Uh, in this book, the emphasis is, is more on the on the existential questions and how the remedies um, embody and address them. So I, I, I was trained as a as a philosopher in college and graduate school, and so it comes naturally to me to uh, think about things this way and organize things uh, in according to philosophical categories. The trick, of course, is not to become so rigidly committed to something that um, you can't make any changes, but it's a flexible model. Um, so I'm not sure if that answers your question. It's a, <laughs> it was a big question. I, I was an acupuncturist for, for 25 years or so, and then I felt a strong calling to go into homeopathy. Both acupuncture and homeopathy are profoundly holistic kinds of medicine that, in which the mind and the body are, are hardwired together. You can't treat one without the other. And uh, that appeals to me. No, I'm kind of Hello, you there? very, yeah, yeah, I'm still here. Can you hear me? Yeah. Yeah. I okay, can hear you. Great. Now, first of all, let's describe for the listeners what homeopathy exactly is. Sure. I'll be happy to do that. Um, homeo means same as, apathy means sickness. So using same to treat sickness, this is the famous uh, law of similars in homeopathy. Um, it means that the, the medicines, which are called remedies, are extremely dilute, very, very, very dilute, purely energy. Uh, that doesn't mean they're weak or ineffective. What it means is that in a gross amount, that same substance, when administered to healthy people under strict research conditions, would produce mental and emotional and physical symptoms in these healthy people that the dilute version of it will cure or will treat. Um, that's what it means. So there, people are confused a lot. I, I, I'm constantly meeting people who think that homeopathy is synonymous with uh, holistic. That's not true. There are things that are holistic that are not homeopathic. There's two other words. Well, there's also the word you know, herbs, another word which starts with H, and um, that confuses people because uh, homeopathic remedies can be made from botanicals, but it, they're also made from many other things, from, from the venoms of insects and snakes and 
poisons and mineral compounds, also from other drugs. It doesn't matter what they're made of, so long as this law of similars principle is, is, is utilized, where we know under you know, very exact conditions what the gross amount of the substance causes in healthy individuals. We note that very carefully, um, especially paying attention, paying especially close attention to the peculiar, the strange, unusual symptoms that are associated with that substance, because those can be very powerful clues for picking the right remedy for somebody. Um, I, also important to describe homeopathy in terms of how it's different from conventional medicine. Homeopathy is not diagnosis driven. It's uh, very individualized. So we have hundreds and hundreds of remedies so that we can make this, uh, this, play this matching game very exactly. Yeah, our client is not the diagnosis. Our client is the individual. Um, and their entire uh, life history comes into play with this. I never know ahead of time what's going to matter to me when I take someone's case and prescribe for it. It may be something that happened a few months ago, or maybe something that had its root, you know, you know decades ago, or, or at, in during childbirth. But the point is um, to get to know the client really well so that you can identify what I started to call the existential issue in that person, the kind of theme that runs through that person's life with an issue that's been intractable to them and has caused illness figuring out what that is, and then prescribing the remedy that contains that existential issue and can prompt a response. The remedy is kind of like a permission slip to the subconscious to let go of something that it has just been completely unable to let go of. And in consequence of that, the, the vital force or the immune system or the subconscious produces polar states, polar states, you know, opposites that cannot resolve each, resolve them, each other and that characterize how I see chronic illness. So I'm telling you a lot here, but uh, a good remedy tricks the vital force into converting a chronic problem into something like an acute problem. So why is that good? Uh, because acute problems, acute illnesses, have a beginning, a middle, and an end. And the vital force identifies a pathogen or an emotional insult, mobilizes itself against that, and overthrows it. Um, whereas in chronic illness, that can't happen or, and you have good days and bad days, but the problem is always there. At the same time, um, this is really good for the economics of the pharmaceutical industry because people get used to just taking all kinds of medication for their chronic illness without ever resolving the condition. So in the conventional world, we're all terrified of acute illness. Oh, this could kill you. This is terrible. What are you taking for that? Whereas historically, acute illnesses are what actually de detoxify us and keep us healthy because the best doctor in the world is right inside yourself. Chronic illnesses, on the other hand, the symptoms have been suppressed or we, the problem that has instigated them has been too big or too, occurred too early on in life, and we, we, the vital force kind of gives up, and then we just uh, fall into this chronic illness kind of pattern. And that has been accommodated by modern medicine, which says, makes a lot of money from people being chronically ill and just maintaining their they're um, suppressing the symptoms. So homeopathy is defined as being quite the opposite of that, that model. The reason it hasn't taken hold, um, it has. It's been hugely prominent in this country in, the, in another century. Um, and around the world, 500 million people rely on it. Um, but the remedies are not patented, so they can't make a profit for anybody. Whereas, of course, as you know, pharmaceutical pro products are patented and a lot of money is spent to get them through the FDA, and then the medical profession has got to recoup that, that, that investment. So the economics uh, and the politics of, of medicine really play into the definitions of what these two kinds of medicines are and, and how they're practiced. Now, it's going to be a big uh, thing to talk about, but it's necessary, I think, because I think uh, in the last three plus years, uh, when COVID-19 hit on the scene, to me, it seemed to, and I hope for a lot of people exposed just exactly what kind of a crazy loop we've been in for the last hundred plus years um, with pharmaceuticals. And so you take a look at this COVID first, you know, well, we don't know if we're going to have a vaccine. And then they rush and they get one. And the next thing you know, you need all these booster shots to the level of, you know, every six months or even more frequent. And it seems to have a lot of negative effects on that. So what are your thoughts about the pursuit of healing the way 
we tend to see, I guess, call it institutionalized or industrialized medicine? Oh, what a big question. You know, homeopaths invented the vaccine, the original version of it. Um, the idea of using light to cure light, that is absolutely a homeopathic idea. Um, smallpox, um, cowpox is similar enough to smallpox that a little bit of inoculation of that can ha help you uh, overcome, um, you know, not, not be infected by, uh, be really harmed by smallpox. Uh, the modern vaccines um, are different, and there are far too many of them, and uh, they can contain adjutants and uh, heavy metals, and uh, we're also going to rely on them for things that probably should not be addressed with vaccines. The childhood diseases, for example, they, you know, they improve our, the, the strength of the Constitution, and uh, probably not such a great idea to, to take those things. I know people say, well, people die from mumps and measles, and it's been really bad. But on the whole, you know, people like me, homeopaths, really rely on the, on the vital force and, and the, the, the doctor within. Yeah, um, the answer to your question is I really follow the money. Um, the, the modern pursuit of, of, of health, there's quite a few things wrong with it. We, we seem to be denied the, the opportunity to grasp, you know, to, to actually engage with our illnesses and from the point of view of their meaning of them. Um, illnesses should not be viewed as something terrified, terrifying. Uh, where we rely on these tests that are inconclusive. Oh, we got to take another test here. Don't try to be your own doctor. Don't try to figure this out. This has no connection to your life history. If you do that, you're going down the road of metaphysics or you're, you know, you're trying to be your own doctor. These, these ideas are false, and um, they really limit our ability not just to, to heal, but to live full, full lives. We, we are denied the opportunity to learn from our illnesses and, our, uh, and, to, and to evolve um, spiritually. Um, through illness, and that's that's a, a terrible shame. Um, I view homeopathy as spiritual forensics. Um, I mean, I'd, I'm not saying it's terrific to be ill, but when you fall ill, you should figure out what the meaning of it is. Um, and the symptoms are a kind of language that can be interpreted, that can be can be made sense of. To be told over and over again that you have no control over this is random. And watch out, something bad's happening here. We've got these. Uh, these ideas of medicine, but they may not work. You know, that's not a good thing. The, the whole, what happened, the context for the, for the, for the COVID um, vaccination program was the Emergency Authorization Act, right? And the premise of that was, inherent, was already false from the get-go. It was the idea that nothing can be done for this stuff. There's nothing. Um, uh, vitamin D, vitamin C will take your license away if you prescribe that. Nothing can be done. So on the basis of that, guess what? We're going to and not put before the public a completely unproved medicine. And it's, we're doing this only because the, treat, the, the, the disease has no, no cure, so we'll do this. But it was not proven, it's, and it's known, and this was done under the auspices of the, of the, uh, the act that proclaimed this was untreatable, and that was false from the very beginning. Um, well, again, once again, follow the money. Once you invest in yourself in that and you can, and you can have a, a means of suppressing all kinds of valid approaches, well, you've got the feels to yourself. You've got people terrified and you've got them, you know, uh, forced to take, to take the vaccines. And um, <laughs> it's, it's economically very, very good. But, of course, it's terrible medicine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. The fact that you see, for instance, uh, Pfizer trying to sue, uh, I guess, the Netherlands or something like that because they don't want to buy more vaccines. <laughs> and you're trying to say, is this about healing or is this about you lining your coffers? It seems like they're kind of getting exposed for the nefarious nonsense that they tend to pull. But getting off track, I'd like to get back into the emotional roots of chronic illness and have you describe, if you can, how important the emotional body is for an individual and what kind of an impact that has when you don't learn how to address that uh, and the physical realm of the body. Well, in my book, I have one very rudimentary model. I mean, the overall book is about these five deep existential questions that I, I create subcategories for that uh, uh, was a way of organizing all the medicines that I, I talk about. But there's a very basic method there that uh, probably is, is easy to relate to your audience or audience here. 
and uh, might make a lot of sense. So, I, and this comes from Chinese medicine. Chinese medicine does not have a particularly complicated or sophisticated psychology to it. Um, it will say that there are five basic emotions. There are, there's uh, happiness or joy, um, there's worry um, or obsessiveness, there's, um, there's grief or sadness, um, there's anger and there's fear. That's five of them. Now, what I've done in this book is liken those five emotions to tools. Why does that work? Because a tool is something that you take out when you need it to solve a problem, and then you put it away when you're done. And the emotions, these five core emotions, serve exactly the same function. We are born with, with we have an inborn toolkit of the emotions. And I'll go through the analogy with you, because it's, it's, it's kind of fun, and it's actually kind of useful. Um, and in psychology, by the way, the, the, the term for, that, that aligns emotions with tools is catharsis. An emotion should, should solve a problem, and uh, that's catharsis. Um, so let me go through it with you a little bit. So I liken happiness to a sketch pad. Sketch pad or a little, yeah, a little note, notebook where you put down your, 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 your ideas for the future, your, where you note the things you want to do. It's, a, it's, it's an optimist, optimistic little piece of paper. Um, you have goals. That's what makes us happy. We have the fact that we'll have something to look forward to that we're working on. Now, once you have that idea, you have to put it into operation. If all you ever do is carry around your sketch pad and just keep dreaming and, and obsessing about what you're going to do, you're overusing the sketch pad. Um, got to put it away at one point so that you can get down to work and actualize what your, what your goals are. Now, if you don't have any objectives, if you feel life is empty, um, you feel flat and there's no point to anything, that's like not using your sketch pad. Or if you're, you know, you've got it crumpled up in your pocket or your pocketbook and it's grimy, you just never pull it out. So there are remedies on both sides of that. In Chinese medicine, that can be helped to some extent with acupuncture and herbs. But in homeopathy, there are remedies which operate on both sides of the problem of that sketch pad. People who are like overly thinking about things and just can't, cannot consolidate their mental energy, but they have lots and lots of ideas. And there are physical symptoms that pertain to that. Could use a remedy like sulfur. Um, that's a very important homeopathic remedy. These are, these are kind of mad scientist types of people or just people who just have too many ideas but can't put them successfully into action. And uh, people, their, their mind is overheated. In fact, they are over, overheated on several levels. Um, they can't stand being overheated. And they, they, they're, they're kind of messy as individuals. And the flip side of that would be someone, something like sepia. This is a remedy state where people are, where often it's, it's women whose marriages have gone bad or have been brought down by resentment and disappointment. And um, they have felt, they've come to learn that hope is toxic, that every time they hope about something, um, they, they, get, they get bitten in the rear end. It doesn't work out. So the, the, the psyche has decided to stagnate all its energy. Um, so in the stagnation, you get bloating, you get skin problems, you get digestive disorders. But psychologically, um, this idea that hope is toxic is, is causing a stagnation effect. And that's like she has her, her sketch pad all crumpled down and crumpled up in her pocketbook and she can't access it. So those are the two sides with that. Um, I liken anxiety to a screwdriver. The screwdriver is where you're bearing down on a particular issue, like really focusing on something. Um, well, if you're in the forest, and I'm going to mix my metaphors here a little bit, and you're starving and you see a mushroom there, your anxiety will prevent you from gobbling the whole mushroom up. Maybe the tiniest amount that you'd eat would be enough to save your life in case it was, it was poisonous. Uh, but you'd still get something. In other words, the anxiety is, is useful. It's like the tool that you pull out, your little screwdriver, just long enough to know whether that something is you know, uh, good for you or bad. And we need our anxiety. Our top performers uh, you know, use their anxiety before going on stage or going on the basketball court. Uh, Bill Russell, the great Celtic player, would throw up every, every time, just before every, every game. And um, maybe if he didn't do that, he wouldn't have been such a great player. Um, so there are remedies for people who are excessively anxious, and I can give up remedies, talk about remedies like arsenicum. Um, and there are, people for people, there are remedies for people who don't really use their screwdriver, who have a reckless quality to them themselves, and are, have, are, get, get sick for opposite reasons. And the remedy for that, like that, for that would be something like metarinum. I don't expect anyone listening out there to know very much about these remedies, but I'm just trying to give the point to your answer, uh, answer to your answer to your point. 
Um, grief, we could talk about that. This is probably a little bit more obvious. I liken that to a hacksaw. So all of us have experienced loss, breakup of a relationship or the loss of a loved one. Well, how long are we supposed to grieve? There's some people who just simply cannot get over a, grie a grief and they will cry forever and ever and ever. It's like they have not used the hacksaw of grief to actually finally cut, cut off from the loss at, you know, and, and adjust to it and admit that this person is gone. This has to happen at the conclusion of grief. There are other people on the other side of that who simply cannot cry. Um, they're not using their hacksaw at all. Um, so someone who, who can't cry, the, the, the grief may be so great that the psyche is saying, get past this, are you kidding me? That would dishonor the loss, it was too big. Or if I cry, I'll cry forever, I can't have that. That would look bad. So that, the remedy on that side of that, that divide would be natural muriaticum, where somebody who is overusing the hacksaw and crying all the time, that would be pulsatilla. What do we got left? We got the pliers of fear. Let's talk about fear for a moment. And language is very useful. Um, things don't become expressions unless they really embody a, a kind of a core truth. How come we say we are gripped by fear? We do, we do. We say we're gripped by fear. And that's why I like the idea of the pliers of fear. We only remain gripped by fear so lo long enough so that we know whether to run away or fight. Then we put our pliers away. But that's, it's useful, it's important. Nobody wants to say, uh, nobody should say, I never want to be fearful or I never want to be anxious. All the emotions have a very clear purpose. And I can talk to you about, talk to you about remedies that are for people who are really stuck in fear, tremendously fearful. Or again, people who, again, simply not, not fearful at all. There are remedies for that. I want to get to the other side. I won't get examples of the remedies each time because um, no one will be able to absorb that. Um, well, what do we have, we have next? Um, we have uh, the hammer of anger. That's kind of an obvious, obvious one. Imagine you have a contractor who comes to your house, going to do some carpentry work. And he says, you know, I woke up this morning and uh, decided I'm not going to use my hammer. I'm going to do every, use all my other tools, but not my hammer. Is that okay with you? You'd say, no, that's not. <laughs> you kind of can't, carpenter are you. Or another carpenter, another workman who comes to your house and says, I'm only going to use my pliers and my screwdriver. I don't like, I'm not, just not going to use my other tools today. That wouldn't work either. So anyway, to the hammer of anger, the nail sticks up and you've got to, you know, smash it down. You take your hammer out and you smash the nail down and then um, you put your hammer away. Um, so this is a very significant one. Um, there are people who have hair trigger, hair trigger rage. Sometimes, uh, you know, people with PTSD who come back from the war, um, you just look at them wrong and they, they flare into a violent anger. Um, they're overusing their hammer, right? Uh, they can't put it away. Of course, when you, when you are angered by something, something opposes you that is unjustifiable, you should take your anger out, you know, lash out and, you know, solve the problem. Even better if you can convert your anger into something like cre some creative action as opposed to lashing out blindly. That's a good thing. But the point is, it should solve a problem. All the, all the tools should be used to solve a problem. Now, the interesting thing about the hammer is, when you look at it, it has a claw end, right? Um, so that's where if you, you, you miss hit, hit the nail, you can pull the nail out again. There are people who have um, to suppress their indignation and their anger. So they don't ever want to feel angry. They're, they're so dignified, they just cannot express their anger normally. They may become vex, vexatious. I know that's an old-fashioned word, to be vexed. To be vexed is to, is to is the, is the um, dysfunctional cousin of anger because it doesn't solve a problem. It's just people who like, turn their hands in the claws and go, claws, and go, ah, ah, I can't do anything here. That's dysfunctional, and that's vexation. And that's like using the claw end of the hammer to kind of claw away at yourself. So that analogy works very, very well for the hammer. And there are remedies. There's one, one remedy in particular that's famous in homeopathy that I will mention, which is staphysagria. And this is for people who, have, who are very dignified, invested in honor. Nothing wrong with that, of course. But they cannot express anger in a normal kind of way. And often it's women who've been brought up to be seen and not heard, to be polite. They never want to be called a bitch. This is, they're, over, they're using the claw end of the hammer on themselves. And unfortunately, that produces a whole set of, 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 of ailments that can be chronic. People who need that remedy, staphysagria, they typically, uh, they're very prone to urinary tract infections, very specific things. They will likely get headaches in the forehead um, they may have pains going down the arm. Uh, they'll have stomach problems. 
they will have skin problems, especially, and they will have styes in the eye, and all that, and Chinese medicine principles can explain this perfectly, re reflects, um, well, in Chinese medicine, it's, it's a liver ailment. The liver is not just an organ, but it's a symbol of a whole set of things that have to do with the eye, with anger, with springtime. Um, so, yeah, they're, they're, they're suppressing their anger, and it's coming out. Um, the, liver, the liver is invading other parts of the body. You're creating heat in the body that rises up to the eyes. Um, this whole constellation of symptoms. And so the remedy Staphysagria um, can help with that. And after they, when people take that remedy, they feel that they, 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 can, they have a more productive use of anger, and they don't feel so terrible afterwards after they get angry. When I want to confirm the appropriateness of that remedy, and I'm pretty, pretty much there, the last question I'll ask is, how do you feel after you get angry? Do you feel better or worse? A healthy person with regard to this would say, I feel good, got it off my chest, solved my problem. This jerk came into my room, my office, and you know, said all kinds of stupid things. I said, get the hell out of here. Took care of that. But somebody who needs this remedy, my God, after they get angry, they feel terrible. They feel guilty, or they'll, if they're angry, they will not be, they'll not raise their voice, they'll convert it to tears. Or the, you know, the, the, the slam, they'll displace their anger. They'll go and they'll slam a door or throw something. But they do not have a natural relationship to their anger. Okay, so that's my basic model of a very simple model of using a five, of, you know, mind-body model um, explaining the connection between an, an, an emotion and uh, the susceptibility to becoming ill. Now, in your book, you talk about existential stress and then existential questions. Kind of describe what that is and how important that is for somebody really trying to trace, why do I feel the way I do and how can I change it? Yeah. Well, in the bigger sense, um, you probably should see a homeopath who can, who can do that for you because you, you really, we really don't, we have a hard time um, perceiving ourselves and uh, investigating ourselves. Actually, my first book has a, a mandala that you can create uh, um, that would actually, you, there's, a, there's a whole alg algorithm. You go through the, the, the practice and you, you would create a self-diagnosis mandala that would tell you what, which, which existential question um, you're, you're, you're in trouble with. Um, well, there are five basic questions and Anyone reading the book will be able to, to make sense of them. I think just reading the book, you would find which one you have an affinity for. I can go through them also to say this is the more sophisticated version of the model I just gave, which is based on the five tools. Um, I guess, shall I just go through those five questions just very briefly? I mean, it, it, it's, a, it's a book long prog problem, but I, people will kind of resonate with those questions and get a sense of it. You get a sense of which of them is, 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 about a you know, deep theme in your life. The first question is, am I in synchrony with nature and with other people? This, but this state, this existential question, by the way, existential questions do not have clear-cut answers. There's not, they're not yes or no answers. They're not something you can just simply throw off. They just have a powerful emotional charge. And it's, when, you need, when you're in the grips of, a, of an existential question like this one, am I in synchrony? That has an affinity for the very early years of life. Like a baby has got to be in synchrony with a mother. For quite, some, quite a period of time, the heartbeats of the mother and the, and the infant are, are synchronous with each other. And then at some point, they, go, they diverge. Um, a remedy like apis, which is made from uh, the venom of the, of, the, uh, of, of, of the angry bee, has as this existential question, um, all kinds of questions pertaining to reproduction. Can I balance my, my reproductive urge with um, my, my need to be busy to have my, and, my, and my work? That's a familiar kind of an, of an issue. Um, we, especially women have to deal with this. So, you know, how, how important is my, my career in opposition to, to my family? And so that's, that's a question of, of, um, of um, synchrony. I've got to synchronize various aspects of my life that pertain also to the heart and circulation. Um, and that, that would become more clear when you study that particular remedy. Okay, but the idea of being synchronous, this is for somebody for whom being in the flow of nature, being, being involved with family, you know, issues around that, that when they don't go, go quite well, um, 
can produce panic, panic disorders, or um, let's say remedies like APIS, in which uh, people, women, again with women, they would, would attempt to develop um, cystic ovaries and um, heat regulation types of problems. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll skip through them a little bit because that, that one's a hard one to describe because when most of us, the listening audience is no longer a very young child. The second one is going to be much more relatable. And that question is, uh, is my existence on Earth sustainable? Now, that one is very, very relatable. It simply means, am I okay in the world or am I not okay in the world? And that, in other words, someone can be not particularly have any outst truly outstanding mental or emotional issues. They just feel like they don't have enough money or they were just working too hard and they're not getting anywhere. Um, the, the operant uh, metaphor would be, have I bitten off more than I can chew? That also pertains to this. Um, do they take on challenges that are beyond their means to succeed with them? Or are they, are they so crippled by anxiety, um, you know, back to the uh, screwdriver of anxiety, that they are, they are not okay in the world? They just, they cannot, they cannot function. Um, and that, that question is closely related to metabolic disorders. Um, again, getting, do I, have I bitten off more than I can chew? That's a metabolic question. And people, in fact, who are prone to that problem would have digestive issues. Um, and they're more, in, 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 in the big scheme of things, there are more digestive diseases than there are pertaining to any other, other body symptoms. In other words, more metabolic problems than nervous disorders or cardio or, or circulatory disorders or reproductive disorders, but the majority of the ways in which we get sick have to do with, am I okay in the world or not? And um, that affects our digestion. So we have to digest, you know, this is also a matter of taking in what, what you know, the raw aspects of nutrients and converting them into something useful that the body can turn into useful tissue. Um, so this is again, the question of, am I, am I okay in the world? Uh, is my existence sustainable? Very, very common common one, and this would pertain to also uh, when we come into our own is the teenage years, um, when we're trying, you know, we testing out our wherewithal, are we going to be able to become successful adults? Uh, let's see, we're going through these now. Um, am I oriented in time and space is another existential question. That sounds a little bit abstract, but it pertains to very much to the, to the lungs, the respiration system, the sense of smell, and, and grief. So this also relates to the hacksaw sadness. Um, if we are caught up in grief, so we can't let go of something, we are disoriented in time, right? We just can't, it's like someone may have died 10 years ago, but we, it's exactly like it happened yesterday. We can't let go of it. Um, other things that pertain to this remedy state would involve um, memory issues such as uh, Alzheimer's disease, where there's a loss of reference. The phone rings, but you don't know what it means anymore. So you're disoriented in space, space and time. And um, uh, this pertains um, also to uh, issues around, um, yeah, basically res respiratory, respiratory issues. In Chinese medicine, the lungs are closely associated with grief. In other words, if you have a grief or sadness, the acupuncturist will automatically assume that you have um, some kind of a respiratory issue. And conversely, if you have a long-standing respiratory issue, uh, the acupuncturist will assume that uh, you, you, you have an unprocessed grief. In homeopathy, uh, isomorphic with this is the idea that uh, there are the tubercular miasm, for example, or, or, or well, actually, this gets much more, more complicated. Um, diseases relating to uh, the history of gonorrhea <laughs> can, play, can play into this. So this is getting a little more complicated, but I, I don't want to get too bogged down in the specifics of it. Let us go through the questions. Um, the, fourth, the fourth existential question is, can the boundary between life and death be abided? So this is where it gets kind of heavy. This relates to the sense, the, what I call the sense of, uh, of, um, of hearing. Uh, it has to do with, language is so interesting. We said we hear our calling, right? What are we supposed to do in life? This is, relates to middle age. Um, am, I, am, I, am I leaving, will I leave a legacy for those who fall be, come beyond me? My relationship to death, if I'm, if I'm so terrified of death that I only, you know, I decide that life is only about being materialistic and having a lot of sex and, and being, you know, being uh, drawn to glitz and glamour, um, that's actually an expression of uh, fear of death. 
and uh, you just want it all on this side of that of that boundary. If on the other side of it, you feel, oh, I'm not so scared of death, I just want to make sure I, I left something for my descendants, that's being at peace with that. And um, there are other remedies where if that concern is too great, you, you would need remedies that pertain to that. But the question remains, you know, how do we, how do we at a deep level feel about, about death? Where do we stand on that? Can that boundary be abided? Do we have a sense of balance around that? And now the, um, the fifth existential question, and they don't all come up at every time in life. These, these are, you know, I'm suggesting are age-appropriate types of, uh, of questions. The fifth one is, will the insurrection of my birth be profitable, be worth it, be successful? So from this standpoint, every birth is an insurrection against the status quo. That means the world's going along pretty well, and now you come along. Um, what impact will your life make on, will, uh, on the status quo? Will we have an impact on life? Will it make, will it make any difference? Or are you just content to sit, sit in the uh, pina coladas on the beach for your whole life? The founder of homeopathy, Samuel Hahnemann, um, has a, a beautiful memorial in Washington, D.C. It was set up, I think, in 1900. And homeopathy was a really big deal in this country. Many, many prominent people contributed to it, and it's beautiful. And in Latin, it says there, I, I did not live in vain. My life was not in vain. And this question mattered enormously to him, and he, mattered, he, he, he manifested a uh, tremendous insurrection against the medical status quo. And he felt, you know, he wanted his life to be me meaningful. Um, too much, you know, when we were younger, that's not, uh, we have, we have maybe have other concerns. We just want to form a relationship or we want to make, get a career going. But, some, but this, this question it does relate more to the latter part of one's life when one kind of looks back. And if we don't resolve it properly, and there are subcategories of this that relate to uh, the, what's homeopaths call the cancer miasm, where we haven't had, where the question is, have we had a successful rebellion in life, which is akin to this idea of, having a, a, a successful insurrection. Um, there are diseases, there are illnesses that, are, that, are, that pertain to, um, to this question, and, and they're particularly their neurological, their neurological, neurological problems. But so there they are. Those are the five existential questions, and uh, the book unpacks them in, in substantial detail. That's appropriate for homeopaths, but also for uh, the casual reader. It's written in, in, I think, a pretty entertaining style, and I, I analyze uh, movie characters and some characters from mythic mythic gods from the point of view of what their what their stories what their stories challenge us to understand to think about mm -hmm. you know it's really a fascinating path to follow and i found that over my lifetime uh that these questions uh whether you ask them the way you suggest in the book or you'd actually watch them sort of arrive or they um uh, reveal themselves, if you will, like when you were uh, talking about earlier about the idea of death, you know, are you afraid of death because you don't know that your life has been as full as you thought it should be? Or then there's the other question, you know, am I concerned about death because of what I leave behind? Like a person might think, well, in the situation I'm in, let's say that you're married and you're worried about dying because you don't know that you're going to leave enough behind for someone to carry on with their lives. You say that's kind of a different way of looking at death, a little more healthy than being more self-centered about it. Would that be a correct way of saying it? Yeah, uh, I'm much more comfortable actually giving concrete examples. So you gave me a perfect one. It's like you're my setup yeah. man here. Now, the remedy arsenicum. Um, that would fall. I'm sorry? I said I try to do what I can on this side. <laughs> <laughs> You're doing a great job. So the remedy arsenicum, um, which I positioned within that question of uh, is my existence on, on uh, Earth sustainable, it can also fit into under another, other one of those questions around death. But, so if you're actually poisoned by genuine arsenic, you get what's called the presentiment of death. Um, you know there's not much time and, uh, left for you, and your circulation compresses within your body, and there's often get like heartburn or some kind of burning sensation interior, in the interior and your exterior, your extremities get very, very cold. So the, 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 um, the existential issue with that is exactly the one that you just described. It's a feeling of I don't have much time. 
um, I, there's no margin for error, and will the people in my circle of love be okay? So people who need that remedy, and there's a huge upside to it, um, they cannot afford to make a mistake. They tend to be perfectionists. They have this tremendous anxiety about mistakes, but also about whether everything's okay with family members. If they take a plane trip, they might be a cause of tremendous anxieties. One of the most anxious remedy states. Um, so, and the, the illnesses that, that can, can, can arise because one has not, one, because one is stuck in that question, you know, obviously tremendous anxiety, uh, appetite disorders, um, anorexia, where somebody is kind of shrinks, shrinks down, they want to retreat into the, <laughs> the psyche wants to retreat to the security of the womb, and they shrink themselves down by not eating, um, and also not talking about things that go, that are maybe, um, that would, might cause their family harm. I have, case, have cases like that. But um, yeah, uh, arsenicum would be the prime remedy like that. You tell you, let me show you how funny these things are going to get, how specific. Here's a, a story I have. Um, once I had to give a talk at a psychotherapy practice, and uh, I, I'd sort of forgotten about it, and it kind of came up on me quickly, and I was late to get there. And I said, what's the big deal? It's just a couple of people there. Um, it'll, 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 they'll just want to have their lunch. So anyway, I was stuck in traffic, and I got there late, and then, lo and behold, I get to this office, and there are like 30, 35 people in this room sitting, waiting for me with their arms folded, and uh, this, this, apparently this was going to be, they were going to get continuing education credits for this or something. It was, a big, it was a bigger deal than I thought. So I took a deep mm -hmm. breath and I said, okay, well, let me, I got to relate to these folks in a hurry. And I thought, well, probably our anxiety is one of the key things that they have to deal with. So I will tell them about this remedy arsenicum. So I did. Um, and then I said, you know, it has an affinity for brunettes, for people with dark hair. I seldom give this to anybody with blonde hair. And also, very often I've noticed that if it's a woman, she will have a certain kind of a hairstyle. And it's a, a page boy haircut that looks kind of like a helmet on your, like a helmet. Uh, you know, I just noticed that. And I said, you know, if, if, I, if I were to have a project manager, an assistant or a project manager, I would love to be, to be somebody who needs this remedy because he or she, mostly she, would, would just make every effort um, to, to you know, not, not make a mistake and get everything done that I possibly could need. And then I looked around the room and I said, you know, it could be something like, a, it would be a great project, you know, office manager. And I'm looking around the room and there's way in the back of the room is sort of woman with this page boy haircut. And I said, she would look a lot like that. And I pointed to this woman and lo and behold, I had identified the office manager. And from that point on, I just had, had them that completely uh, solved my, my unpopularity <laughs> problem with getting to the office so late. And I got a lot of clients out of it. But the, the helmet then, if you want to think about what the meaning of that is, it's like, I'm going to put this helmet on, I'm going to get it done. I'm going to close off, close myself off from all other influences. I'm going to go into this like it's a battle. I cannot afford to make a mistake. And that's my, my deconstruction of what the page boy helmet, page boy haircut means, at least within the context of teaching the arsenicum remedy. You know, that's, it's just a fascinating story because it reminds me about how often that life talks to us. And, you know, I'm sure you've heard this as many people, especially when they're in spiritual pursuit, that generally the outer reality is an expression of our inner reality. And if you can come to believe to at least a reasonable degree how true that is, you'll simply be astonished at, you know, at the things that actually happen. You know, people talk about it as synchronicity, that it just so happened that I thought this and then there it was. What was that all about? You know, what was that power behind that expression? And I remember when I was uh, probably around the third grade, that's when I first became aware of synchronicity, but I didn't know what it was at the time. You know, you're a third, third grade kid, but how it seemed that I would think something or, you know, have a desire and it would just kind of, there it was. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's kind of funny to think that because, and here's, it's just an offbeat story, but it's kind of fun. Um, uh, back when I was growing up in Los Angeles, they used to show a lot of Leviathan movies, things like Godzilla, stuff like that. And I remember thinking one time, because I'd seen the original King Kong, as well as the original Godzilla, I thought, wouldn't it be cool if they had a movie where these two fight each other? 
Flipping through the TV guide, and sure enough, Godzilla versus King Kong. And of course, this was, uh, you know, just a few years after my birth, but I wouldn't know that. But the fact that it just showed up, and I thought, wow. And so I was always curious through life about that. And, you know, how do you develop that sort of power of intentional living where what you have going on on the inside really manifests outside, but not to a degree of manipulation, but to a degree of astonishing mystery, like, God, what's going to happen next? And have that sense yeah. of just odd curiosity. And when you think about this for a minute, that, you know, a lot of people, you were talking about how people like to gather onto the all they believe is theirs, you know, building wealth or whatever, whatever that is. And you have to ask yourself one simple question. If that's what your mindset is, that you don't feel you have enough, what was the conditioning that led you to have those kinds of beliefs in the first place. And I've said this many times on the program over years, especially being in media is this, is that you look at media and I'm talking about all media types and the information and the messages out there always tell people, basically you're not enough, but we've got a solution for that. And if you could just break away from that first go, how motivated am I by this conditioning that I wasn't aware of before, but now I am. I'm aware that it's possible that I've been conditioned by this media apparatus to live my life in that direction. If you can come to the conclusion that that's true, then what's the next step beyond that so you can get rid of or deprogram that stuff? And I would think a lot of people would find stress almost eliminated, I wouldn't say overnight, but pretty darn close. What are your thoughts about that? Well, one thing I'll disagree with is that it's all conditioning. We come into life, we're not blank slaves, and there are definite legacies. Um, part of your pro progress process of, of self-awareness and self-discovery, I'm sure, uh, would involve um, going back into your life history, thinking about what formative events happened, not just to you, but to your family. There definitely are themes that go through generations on generations. I don't know if you ever had like a past life reading or gone to someone like a constellation therapist. Um, we certainly are not born just to re robotically repeat what's happened to us, but also we're not born just to be the, the ping pong ball, you know, bouncing around in the environment based on, you know, whatever is smacking us one way or the other. Um, the, the, the existential issue is somewhere in between that, figuring out um, what it is that we were born to do, uh, what is the challenge to that, and how, also how we can expand um, what our susceptibilities and our capabilities um, denote, you know, so, so we, can become, we can evolve. The whole point is to evolve. Um, and however we do that, you know, matters. I mean, from what you're saying to me, what, what you're picking up as a person, what I'm picking up from you as a person in the media is that, Awareness of the media's influences is, is really a very, very important part of your life, uh, figuring out what that is. And, and that, for you, will, uh, you know, produce a maximal amount of freedom. But, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, life is an interesting place. We have, to, we have to take action sometimes. Sometimes we have to really delve deeply into our backgrounds. Sometimes we have to get really sick to figure out what's, what's important. Or someone has to die for us to know what's, what's important. Or we have to go through some really random, crazy uh, accident. <laughs> it's amazing. Um, it's not, it's not just one more thing. Going back to the uh, prop prophetic stuff that you were talking about. Um, it, you know, we all, there's this idea that this happens and that happens, that time is linear. That is a delusion. There is a, a level of existence and physics will bear this out of simultaneity everywhere. So the past and the future and the present are all right here. And people who, um, make what seem to be predictions are simply tapping into that. Um, one of the things I've been writing about recently is a 1962 movie called Creation of the Humanoids, an incredibly prophetic movie about uh, there's been a, a nuclear holocaust on Earth, almost everybody's wiped out, and um, a class of humanoid robots are created where the memory of the dead are implanted in the robots, and this class of humanoids is created, and people don't, some of them, you know, people don't even know whether they're humanoids, human beings, or robots. And there's so many things in that movie that are absolutely prophetic for the, what's going on with AI right now. Um, we are on the verge of being able to implant memories. Um, 
in 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 technological <laughs> uh, machines. It's it's not it's not out of the question. Things that seem completely ridiculous um, are becoming are we getting closer and closer to them? And um, well, I don't have to tell you about this, but there's been a huge number of science fiction films about this, and um, many of them, you know, they're extremely prophetic. Uh, there was a movie maybe 15 years ago called Idiocracy. I don't know if anyone remembers seeing that, but that's highly prophetic um, for me, at least in, in terms of how things look now. There are people; it's not it's not magic. Uh, you, we have our brain has an ability under certain states if we change our, our brain wave to tap into into the simultaneity of things. And so uh, it's not like this is magic. I made this happen. Um, it was there all along. Well, yeah, that was the idea, especially as I came to know it over the years uh, with the synchronicity. At first, it seemed magical, like is something tuning in to me and then saying, yeah, here it is. Or is it that because I became aware of it, that now what was already existing now exists in front of me? And that was yes. the conclusion I started drawing later in life. But still, That's the right. beauty of it is it kept me asking the question and trying to unfold the mystery. So I stayed curious. And one of the interesting things we did a show some years ago about happiness. And this was a study that was done out of UCLA by these four people who wrote a book on happiness and how does somebody sustain happiness and is it sustainable like long-term? And I think many people as they pursue religion, in one form or another, I remember this actually happened to someone I knew who decided to become Christian. And she says, you know, I've been going to church for months now, and I don't feel I'm any happier than I was before. And I said, well, what made you think going to church and becoming a Christian was going to give you unbridled, sustainable happiness? She says, well, I never thought about that before. But back in this book, one of the things they talk about that sustains happiness is the idea that you always have something forward to look forward to, you know, and there you go. Like I was suggesting, I become curious about the mystery of life unfolding in front of me. What's next? And that's kind of an exciting proposition and a way to live, I would think. Well, I'm going to turn this back to my book because it, it answers that question very specifically. So these five existential questions embody five quandaries, right? And if you can work your way through the, those quandaries, um, I'm not saying you'll be happy, but you'll be as fulfilled as you possibly can be. So synchrony versus isolation. The question is, am I isolated in life or am I in connection with, with life? You have to work that out. If, if you're constantly feeling isolated and alone, then you're not going to be happy, quote unquote, with regard to that particular existential question or, or dimension. Um, is my life, is my life on earth sustainable? Well, you've got to figure out a way that even if you don't have much, that you're okay, that you don't feel um, the world is doing you a, a tough turn and, and uh, you're just not going to make it. It's, that's the question between challenge and anxiety. Have I bitten off too much uh, more than I can chew? You have to resolve that quandary. Um, the other one, which other ones are uh, centeredness versus disorientation. Now, this pertains to all the meditation practices we do. All, they all involve breathing, right? Re centering yourself and, and breathing and and, and living in that one particular moment and not being um, tossed and turned here and there and being locked into the past or into the future. That's a quandary that we have to resolve. Um, the one about death, the boundary, the, the quandary that I, I relate to that is, is um, consolidation versus uh, entropy. You know, death, death can appear like, oh, completely meaningless and making you uh, a non-entity and throwing you completely creating complete meaninglessness or consolidation in which your legacy is 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 con con contracted is is a, a, a connected and you 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 actually consolidated something from your life that will pertain afterwards and the final one um is uh, creativity versus um uh chaos uh that relates to anger um we lash out blind when we lash out blindly and with anger we have not converted our anger into creativity and all this plays out in the neuro neurological framework so if you resolve those five, in my opinion, the meaning of life, uh, which I, I, I wouldn't necessarily relate it to being happy, but just making life worth living, is re resolving those five quandaries. Um, none of us does it ever completely, uh, but that's, that's, I think, where we are designed to head. Right. 
Yeah, it's certainly a fascinating exploration, especially as we talked earlier about uh, the foundation of the emotional roots, you know, and why they manifest themselves is because they don't get addressed, at least the emotional question. And it's really fascinating because people will say, well, how do I know what question is the right question to ask? And of course, your book certainly gives you that roadmap. But I realize, too, that when you tend to have or when anybody tends to have problems, and I'll specifically point this to myself, because I can remember years ago that I was frustrated because it seemed every time things were good, then something bad would happen. And I kept feeling like I was cheated. And finally, that one moment where I actually said that out loud, I realized, well, I've been asking this question for a long time. So what gives here? And why do I put such meaning on disaster after things have been so good? And so you kind of step ahead, you know, later on in life. And one example of how I've come to see that now is, for instance, I had several years, three, four years, I guess, if you will, where things were just going really, really good for me. I mean, it just seemed unstoppable, you know, goals and the whole bit. But then I started in the back of my mind thinking, okay, well, something's got to give here, you know, like something's going to happen. And sure enough, 2020 came along and there was COVID. But this time I didn't think about it the way I used to. I was like, well, now this is curious. So what am I going to learn here rather than, boy, I'm getting cheated in this now? <laughs> Everybody yeah, is. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah, so yeah. The nature of the meaning that I put on that experience was much different than it would have been 15 or 20 years ago. Exactly, exactly. You know, if you interview members of a family, take any family and all the children, um, basically, if they're especially close in age, they'll have lived through the same things, right? Uh, they'll have seen the same arguments between their parents. They'd have eaten the same food. They would have moved to the same locations. But when you talk to each of those individuals, you won't believe how, how different their accounts of their lives are and what, their fil what filters they've adopted are, you know? They'll be with the yeah. same family. Someone will say, I had a horrible childhood. It was just awful. It was uh, this and that. So it's the same exact experience. No, it was a delightful time. It was absolutely delightful. <laughs> many, many variations right. of that. So you see that in families. Um, yeah, the individual, individ our individuality matters much, much more than our commonality. Conventional medicine is based on this idea of commonality, which is why we use the term normal and abnormal. Is this normal? Yeah, this, that doesn't apply in homeopathy land because uh, it just varies so, so tremendously. I remember uh, I watched a documentary around the time of 9-11 on TV. It was about, a, I think, a family of, with a, they had septuplets, identical septuplets, something like maybe six or seven kids. And, um, yeah, same age, all, all boys. And um, around the time of 9-11, um, one of them got really, really sick. And the family took, took this child to the doctor, and the doctor said, oh, uh, he's got uh, worms. Got a, parasite, got a parasite of some sort. Let's treat that. So I'm watching this, and I'm saying, holy cow, they finally got a show about homeopathy, right? So they're pointing out something really obvious, that uh, this is a whole difference comes down to this individual. They're all eating the same food. They all had the same thing. But this one particular kid, why did this particular kid get sick? Well, it turns out this particular kid was much more emotional than the other children. Yes, they had the same pretty you know, similar genetic makeup, um, but I'm, I watched the show, and it didn't, get, didn't go there at all. The doctors just said, oh, you've got worms, and that's the end of it. Whereas to me, I'm sitting there laughing, saying, my God, this is such a, a, a textbook example of what we, we know in homeopathy all the time. The individual matters. That's the terrain. It's, it's, he didn't have any more, any more parasites than any of the other kids. But his emotional makeup in the, in the wake of that trauma you know, predisposed him to having a very discombobulated uh, gut. Mm-hmm. Well, and we're also seeing that in front of us now when you consider, <clears throat> excuse me, the COVID landscape and the vaccine, that that simply isn't true, that one size doesn't fit all, <laughs> at all, in fact. And it's pretty fascinating uh, and disturbing at the same time to, you know, experience this, definitely. When I treat COVID, uh, COVID has a, is really a problem for me because it doesn't affect my prescribing at all. Um, people will, will, will say they got that test, they have COVID. It means nothing to me because when I take the case and I find a remedy that's preeminently effective, um, it's just like all the time before. What, what their individuality is what calls for the remedy. And that's because also COVID is, is, is so different from before. It used to be 
that diseases really did have a common signature. So homeopaths could identify what we call the, uh, the uh, epidemicus generalicus, one remedy that actually would fit everybody, like an influenza, the, the feeling of having, your, of, of having fever and chills and being exhausted and wanting to close your eyes and having your whole, whole body aching. Um, the remedy gelsemium was the epidemicus generalicus, and you could use that, but that's not the case with COVID at all. People tell me, what have you got for COVID? I, have, I say, I'm sorry. You have to have your case taken. There is no such thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and what's interesting as we uh, wrap this up is uh, both my wife and I in 2019, I want to say around December, is we got both really sick. And I mean, I'm pretty good about illness. I, I don't get sick often when I do. It usually comes and goes, and I'm pretty hardy, and I get out and still do what I normally did. But this one here, I remember getting up and getting ready to go to the store and i'm just like oh my god i just heard all over the place and, and then of course the lungs and all the stuff that was in there and and in her case <clears throat> excuse me she felt scared because at night she had to sit up she was feeling like you know i feel like i'm gonna die from whatever this is and what was fascinating is once we climbed out of it no vaccines no medication no nothing okay I haven't been sick since then. No flus, no colds, no nothing. That's right. <laughs> I don't Very good. Yeah. I don't know why they even created that, but they did, and people seem to believe that's going to help them. Well, that's your choice. But seriously, it was weird. I got really sick. It was sort of like my body must have been purging a lot of stuff. And it could be emotional stuff, who knows, because we did, you know, make the big move from the Northwest down to the Southwest. That was a big thing, but it was like, maybe that's what it was. I don't know, but whatever it was, I haven't been sick since. People are like, really? I think and it's I sort of like a computer, update, uh, a computer update. You know, I, I'm certain right. also, uh, COVID or, or not, that this has to do with uh, something like maybe the going from the 4G to the 5G the incredible increase in radiation that we're all subjected to. Yeah. But in any case, just like computers can be updated, you know, they, they, you, you have to get them periodically. Um, the illness is kind of an update, and we have, you know, we, human beings have, all organisms actually have to adapt to this permanent change yeah. in the environment. Um, those who are very vulnerable and uh, don't have the wherewithal to do that, well, they're the ones who are going to die and have serious problems. But the rest of us, people yeah. like you, especially where you don't suppress your reaction and make yourself sicker, with some, some kind of medicine, um, you know, you have created an immunity um, for yourself. And it's really criminal that this, this message was given out that you can't get, in this particular instance, there's no such thing as immunity to COVID. That is absolutely an economic uh, argument and it's completely false. And uh, someone should be sued for having promulgated that argument. Human, this is, is we, are, we have always been human beings. We have always been organisms. We are designed by God. To, to develop immunity and to overcome stuff in you know or in an organic fashion if we put put you know put trust in that yeah i know uh, just quickly before we go here i remember doing an interview years ago with a guy that wrote a series of books called the uh, kitchen sink farmer now you can grow your own food inside even a one-bedroom apartment if you will but what was really cool was the beginning of his book and they're real small books and he talks about uh life bacteria biology and that sort of a thing and he says you got to think about what it took for let's just say bacteria to become what we are now and you're going to try to tell me that something out there is a lot more dangerous than that that it hasn't learned to adapt and, and to, <laughs> you know handle blow. i mean they, this is billions of years of creation <laughs> you know, yeah. you're going to say something like COVID you're right. come in and just off it might it might you know with some people, it just might do that because they're already in that state as it is. But with me, I'm like, you know, bring this on. Forget about it, you know, because I had learned years ago, a fever is a healthy thing to have because it burns out a lot of stuff that's going on in the body. It's like a, a kiln, you know, like a ceramic kiln, if you will, just burning away all the bad stuff. And all you got to do is just try to maintain that temperature you know, so it's reasonable and just let it run its course. And so that's basically how I've lived and just reasonably good eating, I guess. <laughs> so yeah, tell us, uh, yeah. Jerry, where can people find out more about your work, how they can get the book, The Emotional Roots of Chronic Illness, things like that? Yeah, it's put out, uh, it's distributed by Simon & Schuster. If you just Google um, 
the emotional roots of chronic illness, Jerry Cantor, you'll, you'll come to it. Um, the Simon & Schuster site is actually available through Amazon also, lots of places. Um, they could find my other books. I've written five other ones at uh, my own publishing well website called rightwhalepress.com, R-I-G-H-T, and then the whale, W-H-A-L-E, rightwhalepress.com, and you'll see the other books I've written. The book prior to this one is uh, also one I would recommend if you want to understand more about homeopathic history and the incredible prominence of these magnificent homeopathic mental hospitals that uh, nobody, you know, people, do, people would like to pretend never happens, a completely suppressed part of American medical history that um, I shed some light on. Uh, and that was a lot of, a lot of, a lot of fun. If people knew about that, um, they would, we would have a lot better mental health in this problem in this country because homeopathics are fantastically powerful for um, mental health, mental um, and emotional problems, not to mention physical problems. And in the wake mm -hmm. of World of uh, the Civil War, when there was so much grief in this country and people were losing their minds, mental hospitals jumped, you know, proliferated all over the country, and a big percentage of them were homeopathic and extremely popular. And they were utopias. They were self-sufficient. Um, they, were, they were very, very popular. Anyway, that book is called Sane Asylums, The Success of Homeopathy Before Psychiatry Lost Its Mind. And uh, yeah, I think I'd people like will get a to, kick uh, out of it. I'd like to get that also book. Also, it's at the... Yeah. Well, very good. Well, Jerry, thank you so much for joining us here on the Beyond 50 radio program. It was a lot of fun. Thank you very much for having, having me. You're a terrific interviewer. And I uh, hope that people weren't overburdened by the information. I talked quite a lot there. But uh, I, I enjoyed being here, and I appreciate it very much. Yeah, if anything, we just want to open doors and windows and say, hey, let's see where this leads you. And be curious. That's the biggest thing you can do because that's what life is, is solving those mysterious questions that only you can with the tools and the, the talents that you have. So, again, Jerry, thank you so much for being on the program. Thank you very much. What a pleasure. Take care. We want to thank you, the listeners, for tuning in. You can discover more at our website, which is beyond50radio.com. That is the number 50. We do encourage you to sign up for our weekly e-newsletter and stay up to date with what's going on in the world of Beyond 50, as well as our upcoming shows. I'm Daniel Davis. Thank you for joining us. This is the Beyond 50 radio program. And remember, wherever you are is where you should be. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.